The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Mary Harrington. Mary is a regular contributor here at The Spectator, a columnist at Unheard and spearhead the face of the new reactionary feminist movement, a new type of feminism. And she is author of the book Feminism Against Progress that came out earlier this year, 2023. A book which goes into or describes a transhuman cyborg democracy of meat lego Gnosticism, bio-libertarian feminism in a post-human dystopia running on limbic capitalism heading towards gestational communism. If that sounds very arcane, I hope we can dig into some of that to people who haven't heard of those terms. And if we don't get into it, we will enthuse you so that you will go and get this book and I know you will enjoy it as much as I did but uh, Mary thank you for coming in and speaking with me. Thanks for having me. So before we go into all of that some of the things I described there I wondered if you could take me a little bit on your journey and being the face of a new type of feminism which to me seems almost like a conservative feminism um, but we can speak about that if that triggers you but I learned in your book that you've been on quite a journey uh, seemingly through various ways of feminism and postmodernism, and even for a period eschewing your feminine identity and identifying as Sebastian. And uh, for me, learning that seemed, given where you are now, quite uh, surprising. And, and uh, I wondered if you could take me on that journey if it, if it isn't too personal. Well, for my sins, I've spent my life being a chronic political hipster. <laughs> which is and so it, unavoidably I ended up being an early adopter of what I suppose is now woke which I mean was a little bit different in the noughties but I was fully fully signed up to most of the stuff which is now on, on its way to being institutionalized as a kind of hegemonic progressive mainstream ideology that gender is a social construct that all of us can perform ourselves sort of as it were into reality that um, hierarchies should be abolished, that, um, yeah, but I mean, the, the, the whole progressive thing was that was already there in, in germinal form as a kind of avant-garde ideology in the noughties mm-hmm. and has only sort of, you know, concretized itself into its current apparently hegemonic form since then. And I was, I was fully signed up to all of that stuff. I was a radical leftist, you know, I lived in communes-type communities and went on anti-capitalist protests and cut my hair in strange and dyed it in strange colours and, you know, organised weird art events and all, all, all that stuff, you know. And yes, I did change my name to Sebastian for a while. I didn't stick, as it turned, I mean, we can, we can get into all of this. I, did, I found, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it because it, it didn't felt... like being a man or being. Well, I wasn't a man. I never, I never identified as a man. Um, you didn't like yeah, being I, Sebastian. I, I, no, I changed my name to Sebastian mostly as a thought experiment. I wanted to see what it was like um, oh. to be addressed by people as something which wasn't my given name that I'd grown up with. And it turned out, in the event, it felt like too much of an ask of people who'd known me my whole life to demand of them that they call me by a name which wasn't the name which was part of our shared experience. It uh-huh. just it felt wrong to ask that. Uh-huh. To me, whereas you know, if you were to meet, if I were to meet someone for the first time and to introduce myself as Sebastian, people would mostly just completely take it at face value and address me as Sebastian because uh-huh. I mean, why not? But it's a provocative choice to choose a male name. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I was, at the time I was sort of I was hanging out in again, you know, all sorts of things which are now mainstream and quite hegemonic were were already there in German form in the noughties. and one of them was the the quote unquote genderqueer movement, which was very small and very avant garde. And in its London form was basically one pub night and one message board. And that was just it. I mean, it's it's sort of eaten everything seemingly now. But back then, that that wasn't really how it was. Um, It was this this one bar night in a sort of seedy venue uh, just north of King's Cross. It was mostly frequented by... What, what I believe we're now supposed to call assigned female at birth trans people. But, I mean, essentially butch lesbians who, who wanted to, you know, who, who were ambivalent about being 
women. Uh-huh, okay. And, you know, all, pretty much all of which have, sub, you know, the ones I'm still in touch with or in any kind of contact with at all, pretty much all of them have since transitioned, go by he, him, and have had various medical interventions. Every butch lesbian who I ever dated from that era has since transitioned for a while. And, I, and it was actually this which started me wondering about the whole thing. Sorry, we're coming at the whole um, uh, how did you get to where you are thing from, from a very kind of, not, not the angle I was expecting, but actually <laughs> this was one of the things that made me start to wonder about where this was all going. Because, I mean, when I realised that pretty much every lesbian I'd ever dated had subsequently transitioned, for a while I was sort of scratching my head thinking, was it something I said? Was, is, is it me? And I realised it isn't. It's, it, it, it wasn't. There's nothing to do with me. It wasn't about me at all. It was very straightforwardly just that they'd done it because they could. And this was now a thing. And, and from that I began to realise that the butch lesbians were just disappearing. Left, right, and centre. They were, they were, and and I mean, I, I I think butch lesbians are beautiful. You know, I can also understand why this that's a difficult cultural space to inhabit. If you're a masculine presenting woman, you know, there are there are hostilities and challenges that you face on an everyday basis that make life more difficult, right? Because that's just not what people expect from somebody who's female-bodied. So, in a sense, I don't blame any of those women for taking advantage of medical technologies and discourses which were making it easier to just not really not show up as something weird or unusual in mm-hmm. the world. I don't, I don't blame them. And, and this, or at least this was, this was my sort of thought process when I, started, when I started noticing that trans was becoming a thing and that it was claiming butch lesbian after butch lesbian after butch lesbian, pretty much my entire, the, the entire circle of, of people whom I had known as women in that way were just disappearing and becoming men. Um, so why did you then choose a different path? You say that all of them disappeared, but you've well, gone... Well, I mean, lots of things sort of... I mean, I, I was, my 20s were fairly chaotic, right? You know, I, 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 never, I never managed to hold down a job for more than sort of six months at a time. I was fairly bonkers on a number of different axes um, for, um, for complicated reasons, but I just was. I, I was not, not comfortable with order. I was not comfortable with hierarchy. I was not comfortable with taking instruction. I was just very... I mean, the, the, and this obviously makes somebody fairly unemployable from a sort of normie perspective. So, so a the, disagreeable contrarian, sort of sounds like. <laughs> um, well, was I, was I, I, I don't think I was, I, I wasn't contrarian really, I was just nuts. Uh-huh. Um, I was just interested in stuff which was a long way out of the mainstream. You know, I was reading reading Alistair Crowley and Judith Butler and um, experimenting with chaos magic and wanting to go to Burning Man and creating art installations and just not so. Just except, just my my interests were just a long way out of the mainstream. Mainstream, and but this stuff was in universities, not Burning Man, but but Judith Butler and and the, that was part of you know feminist education. Right, but in terms of people who are actually trying to put that into practice in the real world, it's pretty fringe. Okay. Right. I mean, it's, it wasn't the sort of cultural juggernaut it is now. Yeah. I mean, if you'd announced in a sort of average, normy, you know, averagely progressive group of London art world people, for example, that you you wanted to self-create as a non-binary person, they'd have, they'd probably have raised an eyebrow and just kind of shrugged and gone along with it. You know, you wouldn't. You certainly wouldn't have been able to mobilise any of the institutional and sort of punitive coercive structures which are now available to underpin those kinds of identities. I mean, that's all. That's all very much emerged since as these things have become more normalized but well that wasn't really there so in a sense I mean I I enjoyed playing with those kinds of experiments because it felt like very unconquered cultural under-occupied cultural space and I was really interested in this idea of I was very interested in the idea that what you believe is what is and I really wanted to push the boundary I, I wanted to see how far you could go with that what do you mean, what you believe of well, is what well, it is? Well, exactly. I was interested in... I mean, this is just to underline how sort of arcane my interests were at that point. I was... I was we're going to end up going down a... Uh, just Let's go there. <laughs> such, a, <laughs> such a rabbit hole. Um, no, that's, that's, that's too much for okay, a rabbit Okay, well, hole. let me ask then. Um, but, but, but just take... I was interested in the idea that what you believe is what is. You know, the edges of, you know, where does material reality outside my, my perception of it stop uh-huh. and start? And to what extent does what I believe about the world affect what the world actually is? And to what extent does what people believe do what people believe collectively about the world affect how the world is? That was the, the main, the, my main preoccupation, or one of my main preoccupations in my 20s. And I mean, obviously, that's just not a preoccupation that's very compatible with, I don't know, going and getting a job in a management consultant. Um, or writing readable novels or really doing anything very 
very normal or sane at all. So, and, and anyway, long story short, I got, got towards the end of my 20s, you know, and the, having conducted you know, 1,001 different kinds of experiments in countercultural ways of living, you know, all of which I suppose were ordered to this desire to find what the limits of consensus reality were, and came, I suppose, to the conclusion that none of it was very happy and life seemed... I don't know, like when you're when you're 22, right? Life feels as though it's going to go on forever, and you're always going to be 22. Yeah. I mean, you you know. Oh yeah. What I mean a little bit, <laughs> and then you get a few years older, and you realise that no, actually, several several years have passed, and you no longer feel 22. And in fact, life is, it's going to go on for a whole lot longer. And mm. you know, maybe I ought to think a bit more concretely about, you know, what what I want to happen in yeah. the rest of it. And it's yeah, I. I it, living hand-to-mouth in a sketchy house share with lots of people who sort of, whose members drift in and drift out in a, in a fairly ad hoc way, um, just started to feel like something which I didn't really want to have happening to me still in 20 years' time. So I guess I took evasive action just about. But, um, Did you have a eureka moment or like a... a no, a, not really. Was not there really, a sudden, no. no, not really. It was a gradual change. Well, well, yeah, because yes those and, ideas yes are now, no. well, yes they were no. fringe then, but now they are mainstream, or certainly... I suppose probably the thing that sort of knocked me off that course was I co-founded a startup with some friends and, and it went wrong. I was a major contributor to it going wrong, <laughs> just by being mental. Um, <laughs> I was a major contributing factor to it going wrong. But the experience of being basically kicked out of something which I'd co-funded for being mental was a fairly major shock to the system, as you can imagine. And it left me as you... I mean, it's devastating When to you watch. say mental, do you mean erratic I'm, or do you, no, do you I mean, conditions? No, I, 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 I just mean... What do I mean? I mean, it's sort of... It's hard to describe from the outside, but I was just not very easy to work with. Okay. Uh, just let, well, maybe we should just leave it at that. I was just not very easy to work with. Uh-huh. You know, lots of interesting insights and often perceptive, but just not very easy to work with. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely making things worse there. Having something that you created go wrong underneath you is pretty devastating. And, you know, discovering that it was your fault. And, you know, I, I mean, I lost sort of everything which was giving my life meaning at that point. You know, I lost my social circle. I lost my best friend. I mean, my, my best friend and I falling out spectacularly was basic, you know, best friend and co-founder. Mm. Um, we fell out spectacularly. Um, mm. it, it, essentially, one or the other of us was going to have to go. And because I was just so annoying to work with, it was, I think, the, the, the consensus, you know, the, from, from everybody was that it was going to have to be me. So, so that's a very disorienting it was, it experience was that you then had to rebuild your life. It was, it was brutal. I had to rebuild my life absolutely from scratch. Pretty much, um, mm-hmm. you know, I lost I lost my whole sort of social milieu. I lost my sort of professional network. Pretty much, mm-hmm. I lost my social circle. I lost my friend. I, I lost my best friend, and and I was unemployed. Mm. You know, it was it was rubbish. Yeah. Um, it was, and it was my fault. Well, you've now rebuilt your life. Yeah, and- I mean, this is a but like around the same time, just by luck or divine intervention or however you want to. I, I met the man I'm now married to. Hmm. I guess I rebuilt my life with his help. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time I'd reassembled something like a functioning worldview, I was no longer living in London. I was married, and I was retraining as a psychotherapist. I just decided at that point that I was I was just going to do something completely different. So I, I did a part-time psychotherapy training course. I did that for about three, I think it was about five years in the end it took. Um, so I'm actually a qualified psychotherapist. Uh-huh. In hindsight, you know, the, the benefit that I gained from that was probably um, five years of fairly intensive therapy plus the, the kind <laughs> of inter- plus the kind of interpersonal interactions that, and feedback that come with doing that kind of a training. And the upshot of all of which was that I'm now marginally less difficult to work with. Um, <laughs> so that was all, you know, in a, in a roundabout way, that was all very beneficial. But by the time I'd sort of come back to some fairly sort of functioning, integrated sense of myself again, I'd also, in the process of doing all of that, pretty much interrogated all of the values that had fed into all of the ideologies which had fed into me just being Mm. that person. Not just interrogated, lived them, taken them to their full full extent. And I came came to the conclusion that a lot of the the sort of anti-hierarchical, anti-authoritarian, queer theory-inflected stuff... Do we call um, that fourth wave feminism, or is that sort of third, fourth, or is that well, maybe we shouldn't get into the technicalities of it? Uh, but, I've, I, I don't know. I mean, I was, yeah. But the, you're the a fierce whole... critique now of that, and you're equipped like no one else to critique it because you have lived it. So I, that uh, perhaps has been a very important part to where you are now. What people generally describe as the fourth wave, just on a technical 
point. What people generally refer to as the fourth wave is the kind of sex positive stuff that you get from oh, the, okay. from the noughties onwards. Okay. So that's you you know the, things like the slut walk and the slut walk. Yeah, the, the What's demonstrations. A slut walk? <laughs> Um, they, they, they are they're sort of public rallies, if you like, or protests or demonstrations where women will strip down to very, very little clothing and march in defence of being able to dress as you please without oh. being sexually assaulted in public. That sounds terribly exciting. I've, n- I've never been <laughs> on one of them. This is a... I mean, it, it, and, and that and sort of associated um, feminist arguments in favour of sex, radical sexual liberation, radical sexual self-expression, and embracing all sorts of, I suppose, you, you diverse sexual behaviours, you might say, uh-huh. like polyamory or BDSM or you name it, and saying this is, all, this is all good and fine and actually what we need to talk about is consent and um, empowerment. I mean, it's a very, that's a very crude and slightly reductive characterization of the fourth wave, but that's, that's broadly it. Okay. And, that, that, and then all the way up to the sort of 2017 onwards Me Too thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's that, that's what people generally refer to as the fourth wave, and that that sort of that pretty much passed me by because by that point, you know, by the time all of that started happening, I was married, so I was mm-hmm. and well into my long dark tea time of the soul, right? You know, reading countercultural blogs and trying to rethink what I a mum's blogger by that point, as you hmm? described. You were a mum's blogger by that point, as you described <laughs> not, before we started not talking. Not so much. I mean, I was a, I was an avid mum's netter for a while, uh-huh. which probably also contributed to not anymore. I just don't have time anymore. Uh-huh. I, mean, I think. I think you can only be committedly addicted to one social media platform at a time, and that, that's just that's just more Twitter at the moment. Okay, <laughs> I don't actually know Mumsnet. I've not, I've not been on Mumsnet. What's going on on Mumsnet? Is it still an important Mumsnet, platform? Mumsnet. It's a parenting discussion forum. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of it is stuff about your kids. Uh-huh. You know, there are there are whole subsections dedicated to breastfeeding or. Um, and does it lead politically or, some way, or is um, it historically it leans left liberal? But it has interesting characteristics in that way because it's not aggressively woke, or at least, or, or rather, it's it leans left liberal, but it's also a hotbed of turfism and uh-huh. has been for a long time. You know, for fairly obvious reasons. If you've grown new humans in your literal entrails, you're just less likely to believe that humans can literally change sex because you just know that's nonsense. Yeah. And also, you're likely to take a protective attitude to having strange men in a single-sex changing room, and because the founders have always been very protected. So it's sort of classical liberal, I suppose, in their approach to free speech. And they've always been very... They've always tried to walk a line between um, allowing open discussion, even of um, politically incorrect subjects, like trans, the fact that trans women are men, mm-hmm. whilst coming down quite hard on just gratuitous ad hominem sort of... or, or you know, un- unpleasantly attacking responses to that. So they've allowed that discussion to happen. And because it was happening in a community of mums, um, or sort of, you know, it, there's a whole forum on Mumsnet dedicated to feminism and women's rights. Uh-huh. Um, inevitably, I mean, it's a community of women, of course there is, which hosts a lot of England's radical feminists, mm-hmm. you know, which might be a minority. But, it, you know, no, I mean, Mumsnet has played a very interesting cultural, social and cultural role. And I mean, just zooming back from that a little, well, one of the things which I think is interesting and which at the larger structural level, I think, has played into where we find ourselves today, you know, thinking about, talking and thinking about, you know, what, are, what I slightly jokingly call reactionary feminism. I actually think the digital revolution has played a huge part in that because it's created a, a discursive field in which women, busy women who are mothers, are able to have a voice. Ah. And by that, I mean, if you, there's a classic article from a feminist magazine in the 80s uh, that I, I read a little while ago that grumbled about the fact that there was a women's centre, a feminist-run women's centre that held a vote about whether or not they should include a childcare facility there. And the, and the proposal was voted down because none of the feminists who were mothers were able to be there because they were looking after their kids. Mm. Right. Wow. So there's a structural material reason why. Um, women who are mothers have often found themselves not exactly excluded from the, mm-hmm. from feminist conversations, but certainly at the periphery because they're just busy. Yeah. And what's what's interesting about the digital revolution, for all that I'm critical of it, in a great many ways, and I think it has a lot of negative um, side effects, is that you know every mum has a smartphone pretty much, mm-hmm. um, and and the fact that you can be scrolling while pushing a buggy, you know, is at the, at the risk of sort of stereotyping in a slightly naff way. But, <laughs> but you, can, you can have a voice in feminist conversations while simultaneously wrangling three small children. Mm. And that, that, that just wasn't physically possible prior to the social media revolution. Oh. And I think this is, having, this is visibly having a really interesting effect on, on feminism. 
um, because it, it brings motherhood back into the picture. Because clearly, you know, a lot of the you know, feminists tended to skew either to two women who could outsource their childcare or two women who just mm. didn't didn't prioritize caring responsibilities. So the ones who are um, outsourcing are the elite and they will have elite ideas, right, university right, right. style ideas. And, and, and once you have, you know, women who are just regular mothers have an increasing voice within feminism. I think that's one of the reasons why the, the gender critical movement has been emerging. Because if you're a mother, then obviously you think this stuff is complete nonsense uh-huh. um, I mean not you know there are, there are mothers who don't think it's nonsense but uh, you're more you're, you're more likely to have some questions yeah right if you're a mum so on the gender critical topic and this came up I, I, I don't know if you saw last week Roisin Murphy a singer mm. of Irish singer of the band formerly oh, yes. of Maloko and uh, she wrote on Facebook or on, online somewhere that puberty blockers was bad for gender dysphoric kids and that Big Pharma were running away with it and having come from the music industry this this is something I'm particularly sensitive to and her, her record label didn't drop her, but they mm. said they're going to stop promoting her mm. new album. A venue in London, Rough Trade East, cancelled two of her shows and this continued pushback. And this morning I read a, a Guardian piece by Laura Snapes slamming her again. Um, oh yeah, they, they reviewed her album, didn't they? And, and just, they just couldn't, couldn't resist. Uh, yeah, the music's great, but I don't like her opinions. Yeah, they Therefore have to distance themselves <laughs> from the opinions as if those opinions have anything to do with the album. But what, what it occurred to me and sort of, Zooming out a bit is that the gender or the um, uh, trans debate seems to me to be the sort of surface level manifestation of the progeny of of maybe post-war feminism. And, And I'm not educated like you in this, so I'll make some mistakes as I describe this. But it seems to me that there are some there's one group who put biological sex as the salient over uh, gender, and another that puts gender as salient over. Oh. We have a. Uh, I, have I did cut. mention that we have uh, actually a third, a second guest, and this is the first podcast I guess with two guests, which is Mary's dog Safi, who's might make several appearances if we're lucky. Here he is. Here she is. Excuse me. Very beautiful Labrador. Um, so, and, and, and forgive me if this is sort of like a, a, a basic question, but uh, do you think that the idea of gender that's come out of, let's say. 70s 80s feminism has led us to this place like the battle of the turf wars and gender critical battles is born from feminism the answer is always yes and no mm-hmm. uh, i mean feminism is in a hugely rich and fra- often very very fractious argument mm-hmm. there's no way i'm going to be able to do it justice because i mean there's there are vast swathes of theories that i haven't read as well so you know i'm probably only a, a, you know six inches ahead of you on that, and there's, there's, you, you could spend spend your life delving into the theories. I mean, there are second wave feminist antecedents to contemporary gender theory. Yes, I suppose I would be in answering that question. Um, I'd be inclined to go back a little bit. And I mean, this this was really the thesis of, of my book, um, was wanting to go back a little bit further than the second wave to try and understand how we got to where we got to. And and this, this was really prompted by becoming a mother myself and trying to make sense of why motherhood and care appear to be so at the fringes of the conversation about feminism. I, I was a stay-at-home mum for a while after my daughter was born, um, which and, and I was I was surprised to find that actually that was what I wanted to do. And I, but but when I got there and I started to see my peers who'd had babies around the same time as I did going back to work, there was a, there was a huge amount of ambivalence there for a lot of women. You know, some of, I mean there were there were women who for whom you know career was obviously a big priority, and but plenty more who who, who had jobs more than careers, and who had very mixed feelings about returning to a job that they didn't especially love um, instead of looking after their I suppose usually about roughly one year old baby. And it, it also left me realising that, you know, to be in the position that I was in, very fortunately, where, where I had, an, a, you know, my husband asked me, you know, do you want to go back to work? Because at that point I was working contract, so I sort of fell off the edge of the working world when um, shortly before our daughter was born. And, and, and so I didn't really have a job to go back to. And, and we, were, we were very fortunately in a position where I had the option, you know, I could, I could go back to work. And, I, and it got to it and I thought, there isn't really anything, I mean, I was rubbish at everything I ever did professionally. And there, was, there wasn't really anything that I wanted to go back to enough to want to be away from her for a whole day at a time. Mm. It's just, it just didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that there are a huge range of circumstances and there are a lot of women who have to do that and who, do, who just didn't. And, I, and, and I'm, I met plenty of mums who would have bitten somebody's arm off for the option to have the option. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And for whom there just wasn't an option, they had to go back to work. You know, and who had a period of a quite sort of deep grief um, at having having to wave wave their little one off to the nursery. You know, and, and twelve months old is really still a baby. Mm. Um, That's interesting to hear that because more often than not, I think I hear of the grief of women having to give up a career. And rather than the mother's perspective of giving up, I don't know why that's filtering through. Maybe that's the, the news. Well, I mean, I... this is partly about which women have the mic. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really, it's, it's very, very much the case that if you, I mean, if you've trained for years for a profession that you love, but beyond a certain point, there's a re- there, there really is a zero-sum conflict between looking after a baby and having a high-flying professional job. There just is. You can't do both of them at once mm-hmm. very easily. You have to compromise on one side or the, it's not possible to have it all. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if you love your job and you have to turn things down or just, or just give it up because you're looking after a baby, then you might love your baby, but you're, you're still going to feel like you've lost something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have pretty much the holy grail in professional terms in the sense that I work from home super flexibly and, you know, around school hours. And because I'm largely self-employed, I can set my own times or take a week off at no notice um, if my you daughter needs me to. Now. I do, and, and I have the mic, but, but I'm, I'm very unusual in that sense and extraordinarily privileged. Mm-hmm. And most women who have a career that they love as much as I love being a writer um, are not in that position. Right? Mm-hmm. Even I, you know, and I love my daughter to bits and I, I, I'm very fortunate in the position I'm in. I have, to, I have to turn things down sometimes for family reasons. And sometimes, sometimes I wish it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. But it's... But, <laughs> And this is, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, part, and part of my work is trying to advocate for, for, for women to be, to be in a position to say, no, actually, I'm coming down on the side of family. And even then, mm. there are times when I find myself just thinking, oh, I wish I could do that. Um, you know, some, you, there are always trade-offs, right? Yeah. Um, but just to go back to your question about why it is that women, you know, why, why it is you hear more about the grief of giving up a career. Like the kind of women who are likely to end up with a voice in the public conversation are just much more likely to be women, you know, high, high achieving, successful women who have interesting and rewarding careers. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't, you know, no, nobody interviews the, the checkout cashier at Tesco's mm-hmm. about how she feels about going back to work after having a baby like nobody cares and I'm sorry but that's you know I, I wish they and, and the point is I wish they did um, yeah. because actually that's a very different experience advocating for family and uh, I think seems to be a central tenet of reactionary feminism and that's something I'm keen to get into particularly in the sort of global fertility crash that you know it seems like we're in serious trouble and and fewer people getting married, fewer people having babies. And I'm quite keen to get into that, but if, you, if I may, just one thing that's... I, I want you to tell me if I'm a total idiot for thinking this, but it's one thing I've been thinking about, about the gender versus biological sex discussion. It seems to me that gender is a total myth and that there is biological sex. I don't, I don't think I believe in gender anymore. Am I wrong to think that? It's almost like it's become a scientific... It, it, it's completely ideological, but it's now considered like it's a scientific, real thing. Um, am I wrong to think that? Is it something real that I'm just not grasping? Oh, you, do you mean you mean gender identity? Yeah. This idea that people have an innate sense of their sexed self, which somehow takes precedence over embodiment. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's complete bollocks. Yeah. That's not a thing. I just, I, I don't, I don't believe it. it. It's an unfalsifiable belief. But that's come you know, from. And it's, a, it's a belief, not a fact. You know, of the same order mm. as transubstantiation or yeah. you know, virgin birth and I considerably less pro-social implications in my view. And so not at all based in science. And I, and I think it's come from feminist thought, that it's evolved from feminist thought. Am I wrong to think that? The answer to that is quite complicated, or at least the answer I might take on that question is, um, the, there's a, do, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Let's have the long answer. Okay. My thesis in Feminism Against Progress is, it, I borrowed heavily from Ivan Illich, who was v- vigorously cancelled back in the 1980s for a book he wrote called Gender, in which he really, he turns a lot of the sort of received views about sex and gender on their head to argue that prior to the modern era, the relations between men and women were characterised by what he calls vernacular gender, in which what men did and what women did was gendered all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, and it varied immensely from place to place, but you know, in, a, in the subsistence life of peasant communities, what men did and what women did you know, would be gendered all the way down, even down to the kinds of words people use, the kind of tools that were used, the 
behaviors, you know, the, the, the places, you're, the spaces you're allowed to occupy, the activities you're allowed to take place. And unisex work was very rare, if not non-existent. Mm -hmm. And this is what pre-modern society looks like, as in, in Illich's argument. And what he says is that with the, with the Industrial Revolution and the, the rise of sort of homo economicus, if you like, the Adam Smith conception of economic man as a sort of, as a, as fundamentally a sort of transacting atomized individual. Mm -hmm. Illich argues that with that and with the technologies that give rise to that, we enter into what he calls economic sex, which is, in his view, not less sexist, as the feminists would have it, than the pre-modern world, but more sexist, because it, it assumes a, a, a level of parity and equal access to all, all the goods that are available under, the, or, under the, the, the order of modernity between the sexes, whilst covertly structurally disadvantaging women. And, and this, this is really the point where it overlaps with, with my personal experience as a woman and as a mother. Because what Illich is describing is true, you know, to the extent that, you know, if, to be a, a free, transacting, autonomous individual on the liberal model, which really comes into being with modernity and with the industrial, with industrial civilization, is less possible if you're a woman. But specifically, it's less possible if you're a mother, because, you know, to the extent that you have caring responsibilities, you're not atomized. Mm -hmm. And if you're a mother, your caring responsibilities are quite visceral mm -hmm. and embodied. Um, I mean, you know, down to, you know, having, you know, carrying a dependent infant inside your actual body mm -hmm. or feeding a, a, a newborn baby from your physical body. You know, these things tie you down in very concrete ways. Uh -huh. And you can't be an atomized individual on the liberal, liberal template yeah. um, and, and also sustain those things. You just physically can't. And not only that, but if you're a normally attached, devoted mother to a newborn baby, you don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and this was the thing that really came as a shock to me. I think pretty much the second article thereabouts that I ever wrote for Unheard was called How Motherhood Put an End to My Liberalism. Mm -hmm. And it was about exactly that experience, that I'd always believed this idea that to be a feminist meant to pursue unencumbered liberation on the sort of Rousseauian model um, and to free myself from all of the sort of sexed obligations that came with being having a female body. And then I had a baby and I realised I didn't want to because that, that kind of freedom is radically incompatible mm -hmm. with keeping your baby alive. You know, if your baby wakes up screaming at four o'clock in the morning and, and needs, needs you to get up and feed her, um, you can't just say, no, I don't want to and roll over and go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. It's not just that it would be wrong to do it. It's pretty much physically impossible mm -hmm. um, because it just, it sets something off in, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's very difficult to describe unless you've experienced it. But literally the only time I've ever damaged a car in, you know, it's 20, 25 odd years of driving was when I had a hungry baby screaming in the back because I just literally couldn't think. Oh. Um, I just couldn't function properly. And when, when you have a newborn baby, under normal, unless something has gone very wrong with the bond for some complicated, like, due to postpartum depression or something like that, you know, that sense of continuity with your baby is so strong mm. that trying to map the sort of Rousseauian idea of unencumbered liberalism onto it is just, it makes no sense at all. Yeah. And this is, this is fundamentally, this was, the, you know, I'm, here I am pushing my buggy around the streets of uh, small town Bedfordshire. Um, thinking about all of this and trying to make sense of what's just happened to me um, in the context of all the sort of, you know, the feminism and the political theory and whatever else that I've read up to that point, and just thinking none of this computes. How we ended up here, where there's a sort of motherhood-shaped blind spot yeah. in, the whole, in the whole body of political thinking, which is meant to be dedicated to advocating for women's interests. How, 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 how do we end up there? It seems like it's deeper to me than just motherhood-shaped blind spot. And, and this is really Louise Perry's argument, I think, um, in, in her book, The Case Against Sexual Revolution, but post-war feminism, post-1960s, it's women have been forced by the leading feminists, I think, to, on every metric in life, do it the masculine way, whether it's in the at home or in the workplace. It's not just in mothering, it's, it's every, everything has, has been done on male terms. So I think it's broader than just the, the, the mothers. I the, would agree with that, but I'd well. also start further back. And it's in Feminism Against Progress, I have started, I've started the story a long way before the second wave, because I think actually it only makes sense if you go back some distance before the second wave. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I went down the rabbit hole and I, and I realised fairly quickly that it's not as like it's not as though there are no feminists who ever make try and make the case for motherhood. You know, maternal feminism is a thing. You know, it's a well worked out body of theory and you know and recurs at, at repeated intervals throughout the history of feminism. I'm probably an instance of it 
in many respects. But again and again and again, that's not the kind of feminism that wins. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and and for somehow, again and again and again, the sort of embodied, relational, maternal, caring aspect of the feminist argument ends up being memory hold. It just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, along with the question of, you know, how have we ended up with this motherhood-shaped blind spot, I, I came to realise that the, the question is more like, how is it that motherhood keeps being memory hold? Why, why does this keep happening? And then the conclusion I came to on that is, well, no, number one, the sort of my, my sort of framing conception of, of what's going on here is that you, we, we should be thinking about the women's movement not as not as sort of evidence of ongoing moral progress towards some kind of you know imaginary heaven on earth, but as as a response to the industrial revolution. And this is really where the, the piece, the Ivan Illich piece, fits in. Because what Ivan Illich talks about, and, and which I think is correct, I think it's I think what he what he describes is accurate, is um, a, a transition from vernacular gender to economic sex with the arrival of industrialization, which actually leaves women worse off, not better off. Uh-huh. You know, there's this sort of received view that in in the pre-modern world, obviously, you know, obviously life is better now for women than it was in the medieval period. As it was for men, but yeah. Obviously, progress is a thing, yes, and obviously, therefore, life is better now for women than it... And it probably is on some metrics, but I don't, really, I don't believe in progress. I don't think it's a thing. Um, you don't believe in progress? No, I don't, I don't think... I don't, believe, I don't believe in progress. Have we regressed? Uh, I don't believe in regress either. I just think things change. Um, okay. Well, actually, this, uh, this is... But just, just, to, just to complete that mental sentence. Yeah. So, so my, my, my governing thesis for Feminism Against Progress is that you know, the women's movement is not evidence of ongoing moral improvement it's an effect of the industrial revolution and and particularly of the fact that with industrialization work left the home and yeah. it was it was women's work that left the home before men's work yeah. and that left women with with some previous you know some some historically unprecedented challenges mm-hmm. one of which was how do you keep your end up when you're no longer an economically active member of a productive household and and another of them is if you're working class who who looks after your baby while you go to the factory mm-hmm. i mean if you if you if in, under the putting out system or in on a subsistence agrarian situation you know you could, the, all the the women's work of vernacular gender was totally compatible with having little children underfoot but working in working in a large dangerous factory for this is where hours. cottage industry the term right. comes from which yes. i learned from your book yeah yeah, yeah 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 that's where the term cottage industry comes from but you know having having a toddler is completely incompatible with you know working in a factory for 12 hours mm-hmm. a day obviously so what do you do and what what women did you know, and how, how women responded to these new challenges makes up the entirety of first wave feminism, including if, over time the demand for for, for the vote, and mm-hmm. and and what I've I mean it's a, it's a very broad schematic outline because it's the argument of the book isn't just about industrialization, but the very, very schematically there were sort of two sets of characteristic responses in within first wave feminism to what to what happened. Um, one of them was to try and make the case for domesticity and motherhood on the new sort of chief consumer in a private household model. And this was largely a bourgeois thing. And so and there's a huge there's a huge body of writing in the 19th century by women who are who who are wanting to sort of big up women's contribution as mothers and educators and homemakers and you know creators of a space of nurture and respite from economic competition. Mm-hmm. And you know a space outside the market which is a sort of space of safety where you don't have to be homo economicus mm-hmm. so that's that's one characteristic response which i suppose you, you you could call a sort of form of maternal feminism but feminist historiographers from the second wave onwards have tended to dismiss these these writers as sort of you know fifth columnists for the patriarchy i'd never um, heard of them and actually this is my I, this is what i mean by its yeah. memory hold yeah it's you know, memory the second hold. wave has completely memory hold the pretty much the entirety of first wave feminism yeah i mean i'll get to why i have a theory as to why which why um, well and, but anyway i mean this this sort of cult of domestic you know the the feminist defenders of the private domestic sphere um i've, I've characterized as the feminism of care and then on the other side for equally legitimate reasons at, at also, there was an, another body of women who argued for women's right to enter the marketplace on the same terms as men. Mm. So not to withdraw into the private sphere of nurture and care, but to, to participate in Which public is what, life. That's on, what I had. And this is the feminism of freedom. Yeah. And, and if you were to look around you now, you would think that the entirety of the history of feminism is only was the that? history of yeah. feminism, and it is not. 
and this fundamentally, Winston, is because the winners write the history books. Mm. That's just always the way. And you can recuperate the, the feminism which lost mm. if you go rummaging. Mm. But there, there is no definitive history of the feminism which lost the battle. And the battle happened in the 1960s. And, and my argument in the book is not that it was an ideological battle, but that it was another tech transition which tipped the scales yeah, between the, the feminism pill. of freedom and the feminism of gay. The pill which in my view is another industrial revolution. It's, mm -hmm. It signals the beginning of an industrial revolution, which is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. The um, transhuman revolution. Yes, the tra which is really the point where we get from the industrialization of the world to the industrialization of ourselves. Let's not jump into that big swimming pool just yet, but I just want to say again that my favourite part of the book, I think, was what I considered a revisionist history of feminism going to pre-industrial, because for me, I had never considered so many of those things. And, and one of the things that it really changed my mind on, I don't know if it was explicit or implicit, I had sort of adopted recently or recent years the idea that uh, of the, 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 the nuclear family. I think it's Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy, the current uh, Republican presidential candidate, he's, he wrote, uh, the nuclear family is the best form of governance known to mankind. Or that's part of his, his spiel. I'd accepted that particularly, it was a few years ago, BLM, part of their manifesto on their website was against the nuclear family. And I, I had really been honing in on nuclear family and how sacred that was and how important that was politically. But where your book changed my mind on that, by doing this revisionist history of feminism and family to pre-industrial times, was that it was actually the extended family. And, you know, families left the countryside, moved to cities, left their families. And actually children are supposed to be raised within extended families, with grandparents, with aunts and uncles, not just their parents. And, and so I bring this up because I think this ties in somewhat with the, you know, the motherhood blind spot. But I think there's an extended family mm. blind spot. And do you think that, that, that um, uh, Safi's... Uh, Disagrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Safi? Do we need an extended family? <laughs> do you think that, that I've interpreted that fairly? I think that's probably true. I mean, it raises a whole lot of further questions about how you reverse that trend of social atomization. Um, but but I, I think there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are plenty of studies that show mothers are happier in direct proportion to how well supported they feel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're assuming you have a fairly good relationship with your own mother. If you live, if you live in proximity to your mother or you know, to, to grandparents or to other extended family and, and are able to, to have that, to have that support, um, life is better. And, you know, industrial modernity has definitely sort of chipped away mm -hmm. at a great deal of that, you know, both ideologically and also in terms of economic pressures. Mm -hmm. I mean, this sort of basic assumption that humans are just kind of fungible work units who can be picked up and put down somewhere else, you know, pretty much at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, it is obviously incompatible with families. Yeah. Well, certainly it's, it, it's incompatible with having functional, um, functional support networks yeah. of the sort which make raising young children a nice thing rather than an exhausting chore. And this has gone into, and you also write about this in, in the book, uh, the growth of safetyism, you know, the state care for raising families. It's, it seems to me part of the same sort of movement. There's a, a battle against family, generally speaking. I think there's something to that. I mean, it's you, you, you see it most sort of provocatively in cultural war terms when these you know, videos surface, as they do periodically, where some state employee or childcare functionary says you know we have a right to decide how your children are going to be mm -hmm. raised or mm -hmm. we have a right to gender transition your your 12 year old without telling you mm -hmm. or you know so something you know, and, and it sort of crops up in extreme forms like that but in a sense you're right i mean what's you know when when a school teacher takes over what ought to be an obviously apparent a very profound life-changing and I, i'd argue just sort of fundamentally wrong mistaken parenting decision you know over the over the heads of the parents um, what they're doing just sort of takes what are you referring to that um i'm a gender transitioning gender, child okay. without permission without yeah. their parents knowledge um which is a topic of, of contentious culture war at the moment well, there's only, in, on both sides of the pond the prime minister um, rishi sunak i think just as a story yesterday that he was not going to 
forbid that in schools that uh, the gender transitioning so that's right i mean it's a sort of ongoing ongoing, ongoing yeah. row in westminster about yeah. you know how how if at all the government has has any right to legislate on whether yeah. or not and what's going on you know that's really the the most contentious contemporary fault line in terms of where third parties can or or where, where it's appropriate for third parties to take over parenting responsibilities from mm-hmm. individual families but i mean if you go down the rabbit hole a bit you you think about the number of what are essentially parenting decisions which are outsourced in the course of, of handing over your child to a nursery if i were to argue, if i were to take a devil's advocate position i suppose i might say well why is this off limits and not that mm-hmm. And yes, you know, in defence, you know, I've, I've used third-party childcare. It's pretty much an inevitability mm-hmm. unless you're... Even when I was a stay-at-home mum, you know, we used a childminder for, for you know, half a day, mm-hmm. a couple of times a week, when she was little, for a sort of different reasons. And on, on the whole, I'm not anti-third-party childcare. I would certainly never want anybody to think that I was criticizing or denouncing parents who find themselves in the position of you know economically you're like you have to work and and so you have to hand your kid over to a nursery you have you like there are plenty of mothers who you know parent families who are ambivalent enough about that to begin with Mm -hmm. they don't really need me having a go at them on top of it Mm -hmm. so you know just to make that absolutely crystal clear but you're also handing over the, the the raising of your child to somebody who isn't you to somebody who isn't your family so with this in mind, so with the, the motherhood blind spot and what I think is a sort of extended family blind spot, what I wanted to ask you was what political policy would help? And, and sorry, just for further background, you've written as well about the, um, the birth fertility crash, which is a, a global phenomenon in Britain. And this is something I talked about with Louise Perry when she came in. Fewer women are having Babies in Britain, I think, this, according to ONS statistics, statistically, if a woman is childless at 30, there's something like a 50% chance she won't ever have a baby, which is a shocking statistic. This is not to say that it's set in stone, but that's just statistically how it plays out. With that as a, as a backdrop, what can government do to support mothers, support families, encourage them, and uh, what would you like... I mean, we've got an election next year. This seems like... It, important issues what would you like the major parties saying for families i mean fundamentally i don't think any government policy is going to reverse the fertility crash i'm completely doomer on that i think it's a spiritual problem before it's an economic one Uh and there is i mean i I might be wrong you know let's give hungary's pro-family policies a decade and see if the the cultural change beds in but even victor orban who's been aggressively pro-family and very expensively pro-family in in um, in, ter- in terms of the that country's policies, it's seen some uptick in, in the fertility rate, but it's very small compared. You know, fundamentally, the issue is a is, is a spiritual one. It's a cultural one. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would I, I'd be hesitant to try and diagnose it. Certainly, in a you know what what's at the root of that spiritual crisis. Um, I don't. I don't think that's something which can be summed up succinctly. Hmm. Um, but it's fun. I mean, the only sort of succinct formulation I might want to give to that is is, is to say that technocapital is structurally antinatalist, mm-hmm. um, and the on, the only way to fix the antinatalism thing would probably be to smash technocapitalism, um, which is a fairly radical proposal, and and it's certainly not one that any political party is going to stand on in next year's election. Mm. Um, so so that so that's the you know ju- just just kind of you know channeling my bonkers twenty something yeah, okay, radical let's self. Let's keep going down the bonkers rabbit hole. Um, then what would you replace techno-capitalism with? Uh, I mean, that, that's going to... Social conservatism? No, no, no. Social conservatism is just a, a slightly different inflection of techno-capital. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, the, the end of techno-capital looks like the end of Western civilization and technological civilization and, you know, the globalised economy. And, it's you know, it, pro- it probably look, it's pro- it would be a complete nightmare. It would be horrendous. You know, and, and so we can't go that way, but prob- then... Prob- probably, well, I mean... You're, you, a doom, you're a doomsayer <laughs> it, it, about this it, it, current it might, trajectory. It might be that we're just going to end up going that way anyway. I mean, if the Greta Thunberg crew are right, then, you know, we're, we're, we're just They're heading not. that way anyway. I mean, they, they might be, they might, you know, well, I guess we'll we're going to find, we're gonna find out. <laughs> we're going to find out. Um, but, you know, if climate change is real, if we're re- we really are running out of resources, if the eco-modernists are wrong and we can't actually find a way of 
uh, uncoupling growth from energy throughput. If, 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 if you know, there's, there's a lot of, these are all very contested political questions. Um, and if we can't fix the fertility crisis, the future will belong to people who can, who figured out how to unplug from the Skinner machine and furthermore have figured out how to survive and to reproduce themselves in the aftermath of what's going to be the mother of all come downs, economically, culturally, materially, socially. Um, you know, and I don't know if, it, you know, if, if it's just going to be everything getting slowly more rubbish. I don't know what that scenario would look like. You know, everything might just get slowly more rubbish over the course of 100 years, or it might all just, you know, implode in some more spectacular way. Or, or, or maybe I'm wrong, and maybe maybe the eco-modernists will are right, and, and we'll all be fine somehow. So and, you don't think there's an answer to my question no, about whether there's political policy? Well, that can, can there are things it? we could do to make things less obviously anti-family. Mm-hmm. But a useful starting question would be... Um, asking whether there are ways that families could be supported to care for their own children in, instead of being told that it's obviously liberatory for for women to be separated from their babies so mm-hmm. they can which is fine and which is great and you're probably grateful for the 30 funded hours if you're if you have a, if you have a job that you enjoy but you know if, if your 30 funded hours are being used to put packets through a scanner yeah. um, maybe you'd appreciate there being an option to look after your own toddler mm-hmm. without getting your house repossessed you know those kinds of policies i think and I, it's an endless source of frustration for me that somehow neither side of the political spectrum ever seems to contemplate the possibility that some women might enjoy looking after their own children. Mm. I mean, there's the, the stay-at-home mum tax is, you know, the marginal tax on single-earner families is brutal. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just think that's mad. Mm-hmm. You know, children are, you know, the, the data show again and again and again that children are most are happiest and most well-adjusted, except in, you know, outlier situations of you know family chaos or impoverishment you know children flourish best you know either in the care of their own mother or father or of another extended family member Mm -hmm. why is it beyond the wit of man Mm -hmm. or why is it beyond the wit of politician i suppose i should say to look at policies which could support more more children growing up in that environment i don't know but somehow here we still are it doesn't seem to matter how often people point it out it just never never gets through it's an endless source of frustration i probably agree with you that it is a cultural issue and and you mentioned and at the beginning of this conversation, I read off some of the, the phenomena which you describe as quasi-religious in your book, let's say transhuman cyborg democracy, meet Lego Gnosticism. Cyborg theocracy. Theocracy, excuse me. Uh, there's, there's nothing democratic about it. <laughs> um, Biolibertarian feminism. Uh, uh, these are quasi-religious and, and it struck me reading it that they were, and, and actually post-humanism, which is a pseudo-religion as far as I can mm-hmm. work out. It has its own ethics. You know, it's atheistic, but it, so it doesn't have a metaphysic, but it, it has leaps of faith like any other religion. And uh, it seems to me that they are filling the gaps in the same way that wokeism is filling d- gaps. It's the death of God and these new pseudo-religions coming in and filling the gap. What I wondered was whether you... You never go to the religious in your book, but the feminism you expound is is very close to traditional Christian culture, Christianity. Has all of this stuff not emerged by the death of God? I would probably argue rather that a lot of the contests that we're seeing at the moment are are a continuation of Christianity, but you know, the arguments are a continuation of, of the Reformation by other means. Um, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> Uh, I, I think we're in the throes of a new reformation. I mean, that's that's a big claim, and that's probably the next book. Uh-huh. Um, if I ever get myself together to write the proposal, that's probably the next book, the new reformation, which is largely driven by the end of print culture and the entry into the transhumanist era. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not go down that rabbit hole for now. But okay. it, it's that it's my yeah, a, a lot of the priors of the of the Christian era are being refactored in the light of science and technology. And those who uncritically endorse these new developments as a positive thing, you know, sort of white have devised for themselves a kind of white labelled version of um, some Christian ethics, but shorn of any of the difficult bits, um, and uh, and a kind of using. So you think those those are Christian? Well, I mean, a lot of it has recognisably Christian overtones, doesn't it? You know, the the like? hyperfixation on victims. It's the crucifixion just without the resurrection or redemption. Um, uh, I'm not sure I buy that because I would see the crucifixion as the message of bearing your cross honourably. It's the opposite of victim. It's to not be a victim despite all the hell that that 
life I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, you could say that there's something quite satanic about the idea of elevating a sacrificial victim without there ever being a possibility of redemption. Nonetheless, you know, the, the, the motif of the, the sanctified victim has transitioned straight from Christian theology and sort of broadly Christian culture to becoming something else and, you know, having, having been shorn of its obvious theological trappings and the idea that there's, a, there's an afterlife or any of that. But it's alive and kicking just in a purely materialistic way. Yeah, I certainly see um, that with work. So, so there's that. I mean, there are plenty of other examples as well. Uh-huh. The phrase I coined that people lob back at me a lot is meat Lego Gnosticism, yeah. which is it, my, my, and partly it's a critique of this idea that we can chop and change bits of ourselves as though our bodies are made of Lego, which is just obviously false. Um, you know, humans, you know, the human organism is an integrated thing and you can't just, you know, add or remove bits. So this um, is most, uh, we're seeing this most commonly in this, let's say, the trans... Uh, right. I've drawn a link between that and the Gnostic heresy, which again lurks there in the in the background of the history of Christianity all the way mm. all the way from the early history really, the, the, the first centuries. The Gnostic heresy the was Christ. like a it was a was it a Greek some sort of they had a a, a different god. The genealogy of it is complicated and people don't entirely know because most of the writings of the of the Gnostic cults were destroyed after the Albigensian Crusade where the Knights Templar just obliterated them. Ah. So an you know, some of the Gnostics may have survived, but, but very little of their paperwork does. And most of what people know about the Gnostics um, survives in the records of um, the Inquisition. So, mm-hmm. so it, and it's hard to say. It's hard, it's hard to say what you know how much of what the what, what was extracted under torture was you know by the Spanish by the Inquisition was actually accurate. Anyway, who knows? Um, but I mean, from what we what we do know, it has it has some of its origins in Middle Eastern deities, but it's a Manichaean religion that being a, there's a good god and there's an evil god mm-hmm. and and the the entirety of the material realm it was created by an evil demiurge to trap our higher spiritual souls who who can only be completed by escaping the material realm to mm. reunite with reunite with the with the divine uh-huh. um but and, and this is that's a sort of very very crude outline uh-huh. um, and and so somewhere and I, have a, I think there are there are some clear differences between the, this idea that we're disembodied selves um, who, who who ought to be able to remodel our bodies as we see fit, which is uh-huh. the which is the sort of fundamental premise of a lot of gender ideology. There are some differences between that and the Gnostic idea, mm-hmm. but the, the the sort of core idea that there's something wicked or imprisoning about the physical realm and about, mm-hmm. or about embodiment as such has carried through direct from the Gnostic heresy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are there are those who make the case that the the flourishing of science from Protestant from the Protestant Reformation onwards, you know, continued the Gnostic tradition. Uh, I mean, you know, there are there are sort of arcane kind of you know mm-hmm. history of ideas um, side quests you can follow yeah. on this topic if you want to. My late friend Wendy Wheeler argues that Francis Bacon was one of the one of the most um, influential modern Gnostics. Huh. Uh, How so? In that his the scientific method in a sense you know, in disenchanting the material realm and rendering it an object of study rather than a sort of enchanted domain uh, a book of signs written by God, you know in a, uh-huh. in a sense it strips the life and the enchantment from the material realm in ways which is not dissimilar to dismissing it as a sort of evil prison. It implies that that way of looking at the world that in as much as there's anything good or worthwhile about people, it's in the realm of idea, in mm-hmm. the realm of rationality, and that in a sense our, our bodies are an, are an obstacle. To our becoming fully ourselves, there's a, a kind of a pessimistic view here because you don't believe that there's political solutions. You're pessimistic about the cultural solutions. You think we're going into reformation, which of, of course was followed then by very bloody wars, and uh, it seems like only things are, are getting worse. Is there a positive? What can be done that's positive to get us out of this? Well, I mean, I think, position? You, need to, I think you need to take the long view. I mean, you know, the, the Hundred Years' War only lasted 100 years. Yeah, so, quite sure, I guess. <laughs> you know, we, we might not live to see the end of the New Reformation, but somebody will. You know, I don't think humanity is toast. Far from mm-hmm. it. London will survive modernity, for example, because mm-hmm. it's just too geographically well-placed mm-hmm. for to be otherwise. Humanity will survive modernity as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in what form is anybody's guess. Mm-hmm. But if, if, as is my contention, modernity is in crisis... And, and we're past peak progress and perhaps we have a long way to come down. You know, it doesn't follow from that that, that it's all over. See, my positive, if I'm going to give a positive answer to that, Mary, is that I see a, a people going back to church and noticeably 
unlike 20 years ago or 10 years ago, it's less uncool to publicly profess your Christianity. Well. I find I that very interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I noticed that uh, this month with Oliver Anthony, the singer, mm. that coming out reading scripture on Joe Rogan. I was, what? That's unfathomable that someone would do that before. Uh, the num- church-going numbers are going up, albeit in certain churches and not others. And it's almost like, uh, I think there's a Martin Gurry line, he says something, when people give up on the, the city of man, they turn back to the city right. of God. And it, it seems to me that that is the positive I guess that's reformational in a sense. But, it is, uh, it is. I mean, I often find myself thinking about, you know, the prognosis for public Christianity. We attend our local Anglican church, which is, you know, it's in the same doldrums as most Anglican churches, right? You know, it's, it's, it, most of the congregation is, is pushing, you know, you, there are, there aren't, there's not many members of the congregation who are under 60, put it that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that, it's, it's just, it has that in common with you know, a great many other churches. And, and, I, and I, was, I was looking around and I was thinking, is it, is it just over? And, and actually, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it may well be over for the Church of England as a public political institution in the form, you know, in the, in the role it's played in Britain's political system since the Glorious Revolution. Mm-hmm. I think, and well, really, really since Henry VIII did what he did, you know, that may well be over. But I don't think the Christian faith is over. Mm. I, I just don't. Because it's, you know, <laughs> it's had years in the wilderness before. Mm-hmm. And here we, here we still are, mm-hmm. you know, 2,000 years later. Okay, I'll, I'll take that as a as well. Maybe I mean, a possible, a, there are there are plenty of plenty of other reasons to be cheerful. Um, I'm by no means doomerish about what we do next. You know, I, I dedicated the whole last third of the book to things that we might do on an, on on a small scale, on mm-hmm. an interpersonal scale, to respond to where we are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think which is the which is reactionary feminism. Yeah. Which started as a joke, actually. There was a, it was a long-running argument with, via Twitter DM with a friend, or now a friend, there was a, then, then a relative stranger, who was this, this guy who wrote to me to say, you, you shouldn't call yourself post-liberal, you should call yourself a reactionary. And I said, what? Who are you? Uh, <laughs> and we had this long argument about whether reactionary or, was more useful than post-liberal. And it went on for months. Eventually, I was persuaded of his view, which, uh, which was that reactionary is better than post-liberal. But, and I didn't say anything. I was like, OK, fine, you win. So I, and I just changed my Twitter bio from post-liberal feminist to reactionary feminist, just to see how long it would take him to notice. Uh-huh. Um, it took, took a few days. And then a few days after that, um, Matt Schmitz at First Things wrote to me to say, this is the, your, your Twitter bio is very arresting. Would you like to write something for us and explain uh-huh. what you mean? And I thought, <laughs> now I'm going to have to think, figure out what I mean. So um, for people who don't know what reactionary feminism is, uh, what's the elevator pitch? Well, I mean, and they just, can get you know, the rest what, of it in the book. Uh, but but what does it look like if you set out to advocate for women's interests, but you don't believe in progress? Hmm. The short answer to the question, well, there isn't really a short answer. The, the, the only answer I've been able to come up with to the question is, is about 50,000 words long, and it is this book. I highly recommend the book. I still think it's a sort of conservative type of feminism. Maybe that will emerge. Well, I mean, the, the difference between a conservative and a reactionary, this is, I have to quote, the, one of the greatest reactionary of all times, again, at you on that, which is Nicolas Gomez Davila, um, who says, you know, a reactionary will only become a conservative in eras in which there's something worth conserving. Huh. So you don't think there's anything worth conserving? I don't think there's anything much left to conserve. I mean, you know, pockets of things which are worthwhile are left, but overall, yeah, you know, I come into London and I think, well, you know, there's some, some pretty buildings, but even those buildings are mostly now hollowed out by hedge funds who've, who've rebuilt, who've kept yeah. the facade and rebuilt them on the inside with yeah. steel girders, and, which I think is just a perfect metaphor for so much, yeah. really. So actually, it's kind of like an anarchist feminist. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, being a reactionary and being an anarchist yeah. are two, yeah, and anarchists just want to smash everything uh-huh. and create everything from first principles all the yeah. time, yeah. which just feel, uh, that's just exhausting. I mean, I've tried living life from first principles all the time. It's really tiring. <laughs> You know, you need habits. Mm-hmm. You need habitual ways of doing things because otherwise it's just crazy making. You never get anything done. Yeah. You have to you have to think about where you put your pants. Yeah, because you put them somewhere different to where you put them yesterday. It's, it, it, yeah, it's just crazy making. Well, on that note, <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for speaking with me. We went into quite a lot of the weeds, but there's a lot more there and it's all actually very clear in your book which I have recommended and given copies to many friends because I think it's really brilliant I'm really excited about it and I'm I'm excited about what I see as a bit of a movement with you and and Louise and and these other writers because I think it's really necessary and and I'm glad that there are people thinking positively about mothers and, and families which seems really important and maybe that's the sort of start that we need even if it there's no political cultural answers just yet 
at least that you're thinking about it. And that's phenomenal. So um, thank you so much for speaking for me. And uh, where can people find you? I mean, we've already said Unheard and Spectator. Is there anywhere else that they can find you online? Or uh... I'm on Twitter at uh-huh. Moving Circles. I have a sporadic substack, also titled Reactionary Feminist. You can find you know, ad hoc thoughts on all sorts of things. Wonderful. Well, Mary Harrington, thank you so much thank for you. speaking with me. Thank you.